Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Oh, hello. Welcome to Waypoints. It's Wednesday, and the Waypoint staff and friends are taking a little break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Uh, gathered around the table this Wednesday, we've got Patrick Klepek still nursing that hangover. No, you can't get a hangover from MGD, as it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> but God knows you tried. I did have to go. I did have to go to the bathroom uh, like four times last night. I think I might be a lightweight then, because I've definitely gotten a hangover from Coors Light. I think at uh, Dodger Stadium. <laughs> now, admittedly, they're selling it by like the aquarium tank. But well, whatever. I was gonna say, yeah. Look, okay, you know, when I'm having it in like the regular cans, you know, uh, slowly sipping it in a garage, a little bit different than it's like we've only got an hour left. Better get two of these thirty-two ounces and just put them back. <laughs> uh, we've also got Danielle Rando. Hi, I like baseball a lot, but I don't really drink beer, so I'm weird. But there was that time you totally showed up to a baseball game and just, like, crushed. Uh, it was Gawker, right? What are we talking about? I am very You played confused. baseball last year. I remember you running across oh, a bridge to go yes. to a baseball game. Sorry. It was softball. That's why I was so confused. They're so yeah, weirdly... Di- no, I know. It's it's the same shit. Close yes. enough. I... I I batted a thousand. No, wait, I batted five hundred. <laughs> that's still <laughs> those numbers are pretty. Hey, if you Hall round up five hundred, I made 1, contact on the ball each time. That's, I just uh, didn't quite uh, make it to first base that second time. But I, I got a run. I got a run batted in, and I, I, uh, I had a really good hit. I had a good base hit. So yes, hell yeah. And that was Natalie was Watson. Good. It was. I also enjoy baseball, and I also enjoy beer, which is why I am the glue that holds this team together. I am and, it's, both. and it's why Kato's not on this podcast, because I, who knows where he stands, but he doesn't like baseball. So get that guy out of here. He doesn't. He does not like baseball. It's boring. Yeah, just Kato like Kato. To my Stay right. off camera. Oh! <laughs> Wow. Okay. I, so that. <laughs> I mean, it's not as exciting as watching somebody fail at a Destiny raid for 12 fucking hours. Oh! Kato just flipped a table over here. I don't know. Kato just stormed out of the room. Oh my God. He said he's buying a ticket to Chicago. I don't know where he's going. <laughs> but I'm not the one that said the Destiny joke. That, that was about, go to the East Coast. Go to the East Coast. He's making he two Chicago stars. spawned both of us, so, you know, I guess it's the city's fault. That's what it is. Anyway, uh, Natalie, it's great to have you back this week, and I thought I'd let Thank you start you. us out. Since you've spent the last week trying to figure out how you feel about your waypoint. I've been just trying to figure out how I feel in general, um, but I've also been trying to figure out how I feel about my waypoint because my waypoint is Maniac, the new series that was just released on Netflix a couple weeks ago. 
um, directed by Kerry Joji Fukunaga, um, who also directed uh, Beasts of No Nation and the first season of True Detective. Mm. Um, and, and was supposed to direct the new It movie till he pulled out at the last second. <laughs> but he wrote it, correct? Yeah, he was still uh, credited with the script. They went in yeah. and changed some stuff, but a lot of the the the, the setting for that um, adaptation was his. I I liked that. I liked that uh, take on it. But goddamn, he had he is such a visual storyteller that I can't help but wonder what he would have done. Um, yeah, had it been him. He also directed Jane Eyre. Which I'm good. Def- I want to rewatch now. I saw it like when it came out in 2011, but um, really want to rewatch that and re- revisit that because I'm interested to see. Uh, I I didn't have the, a critical mind at that time in my life, so I'm due for a rewatch. But um, anyway, so Maniac, it's like a dark comedy sort of vibe, um, dramedy, whatever. Pretty dark though. Pretty dark, and the. The basic nutshell is that two strangers, Annie and Owen, Annie is played by Emma Stone and Owen is played by Jonah Hill. If you were wondering why you saw pictures of Jonah Hill in like pigtail braids and like a grill last year, this is why this show is why that happened. Um, so, slight spoilers, but I think it's important to know that answer questions will be answered in this show. <laughs> the mythology of reality is finally addressed in the show, Maniac. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so these two strangers, Annie and Owen, both who uh, independently struggle with um, different mental illnesses. For uh, Owen, uh, he deals with schizophrenia, and um, with Annie, she deals with... Uh, depression and addiction and so they both uh independently of each other sign up for this experimental pharmaceutical trial that promises to rid the world of the need for conventional therapy um like talk therapy so it takes the setting is kind of a world like that could be our own but it's just slightly different so it's slightly more, it's like an alternate reality to ours in which there are these uh, people called ad buddies that um, will read commercials out loud to you as payment. So if you don't have enough money to pay for something, you can pay for it in ad buddies and then the ad buddy will show up like while you're on the train and like just talk to you. <laughs> and, it's, and it's not like this is someone that is like like buttoned up in a suit or like it's a it's a it's an AI that's following you like giving a perfect script. It's like in the show it's just this slob but this is like ah yeah. Ah, what else do I got here? Here's a pamphlet. Like ah, I'll read that one. I mean it's <laughs> How much you pay in rent? Oh man, this city. <laughs> it's yeah. truly one of the like and, and it's played in such a way that it's funny but it's not like yuck 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 it was but yeah. it, it was the first like true laugh i had in the show yeah totally and it's not like there isn't the show doesn't make like a point to like highlight like what's going on with the ad buddies or like what's like the the setting is just the setting which is kind of an odd thing because given the first episode at least the first episode, you'd really think that, you know, portraying this dystopic world that we're going to go into, like, okay, so what are these ad buddies? What is this, like, 
in the second episode, there's like people you can pay to uh, pull up information on people, um, like basically like dox people for you. Um, and so a lot of my expectations of like where the show was going to go in the first episode, none of the places it could go were places that I wanted it to go. <laughs> I was like slightly interested in the dystopic, like, whoa, okay, what's going on here? This like sort of like techno capitalist world like that's interesting but uh I don't know I don't know if that's like what I want I don't know if I want the uh Rob you said the like Wes Anderson toxic relationship like quirky (laughs) it's it's such a weird like I'm three episodes in I still like couldn't really give you the nutshell description of what the show is about because I do think Like, the setting matters in that I think it's, in a lot of ways, imagining our, like, the dystopian elements of our present, but, like, in a world where um, technology, like, didn't progress in the same ways. Technology still has, Mm -hmm. like, weight. It's clunky. It's, uh, like, it's... The the present world, but without like the microprocessor is yeah the, super analog. Like the uh, the um like the little cleaning robot um is like a great example of that like that is cleaning the one of the sidewalks and like the way it cleans it is like it just like shoots out this like disgusting goo and it, the robot <laughs> it's looks like it's bot. it looks like it's like taken out of something from Star Wars like a little droid <laughs> that's going around where it, you know it's like, it's big it's bulky it's 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 like kind of rust on it like it doesn't look like traditional sexy in the way that we imagine like. Our dystopias usually come with like very sleek, minimalistic technology, and this is like yeah, feels very bulky in a way that gives it uh, a different sort of tone. Well, and the show yeah. is like explicitly visually referencing like Alien, uh, for instance, and I would say also it has like strong, um, like it's also I think calling back particularly with its soundtrack uh, to like Blade Runner, uh, for instance. There's mm-hmm. like a, a Vangelis esque. Uh, sort of haunting synth score that uh, accompanies a lot of the action here. But like literally one of the major sets in the series is basically the mess room table from Alien. Like that's kind Mm. of the visual like language it's borrowing from. But I think what it is doing, like with the ad buddy is a perfect example of the show is not about its world and like how it's dystopian. That's just sort of the Mm -hmm. backdrop for it. But I do think it is, useful for heightening the absurdity and alienation that is afflicting the characters. Like the Mm. ad buddy is basically just the preposterousness of the ad supported economy. You know, like you can get this Mm. thing. If you just like, if this ad flashes on your screen or hits your eyeballs or something here, it's you get a rumpled like Willie Loman showing up at your door (laughs) being like, uh, so you want to go have a fake family. That seems cool. Yeah, he was like, yeah, you be a hero. Like, go volunteer. For <laughs> and you have to a- pay for the right to do it. It's not I know, that <laughs> was... <laughs> that was really good. That but was think really of how you moment. could help, says the friendly pitch man. Oh, so good. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so for me, in terms of what I mean by, like, figuring out if I... how I feel about this show, there are a lot of things I think I did not... I think... The things that the show wanted me to really like were the kind of absurdism elements of the show. Like in the third episode, there's this like VR sequence that I won't talk about, but it is like sexually explicit and it's like a VR porn, basically. Um, which is like it the VR is like super saturated fantasy world, uh, 
like they're like this she's like this the the female uh figure or female bodied figure is like um uh has like a like monster like look to her and she's very like seductive and blah 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 and like that to me I was like okay that's not cool like I don't know this is just weird I just am not into it and so I feel like the things that the show wanted me to like about it like the cool like quirks of it I was kind of lost on but for me the strongest part of the show was the midsection which are episodes like four through six um and so Within the pharmaceutical trial, there are three phases of the trial itself, and four through six take place in the second phase. Um, basically, the phases are there's a A pill, which is the first one you take, which stands for, um, I wrote it down, it stands for agonia, so it's the struggle, it's like identifying what the source of your trauma is, what the source of whatever you know your mental struggle is like centered on. And then B is for behavioral, which is the second one, which uh, identifies your, like, sort of defense mechanisms to you. Um, uh, Patrick Somerville, who's the writer of the show, said that the B pill uh, is meant to expose people the ways in which they lie to themselves. I think to get honest looks at those kind of things, people have to face ugly versions of themselves or face behaviors that they are capable of. And then the C pill is confrontation. And so when each when you take these pills you kind of enter a dream state that allows you to work out whatever that pill is meant to do within the dream state and then you wake up and I don't know presumably feel better. Um but there was this really interesting scene in in the let's see I think it was the 5th episode yeah, the fifth episode where basically uh, Emma Stone, Annie has a diagnostic report printed out for her after she like answers these questions to see if the way that she, if if her defense mechanisms have truly been brought down or if she's able to identify the defense mechanisms that she's been using to protect herself um, from the trauma that she experienced. And what was really wild to me is, you know, watching Annie read kind of skim over her diagnostics and to see like what is wrong with her um, especially because this is a pill this is like a therapy that is supposed to or a a um, medicinal therapy that is supposed to like get rid of tr- conventional therapy altogether and the whole idea that to take you know you just go through this one thing you just do you take these three pills and then you won't ever have to take their do therapy again you'll feel better the whole better than therapy thing this one character says um uh towards the end that uh you know i wait hold on i have the quote that um basically he says that you know i don't really know if it's the right thing to do to have all these things brought up like right at the start like people do need to work through things and and although you're like working through them in the dream states you know it takes time to like kind of go through eat the process of like working through your traumas I don't know I just had a lot of feelings about that because as someone who's like struggled with mental illness as well and like reading my diagnostics before was like it made me feel good in the sense that I was, like, being identified. Like, there was something that I could point to and be like, that 
that is the thing that I am experiencing. But the what's wrong with me is like, you know, the eternal question, like, why? Okay, why is this happening? And to think that like, that would just be like written on a page, like, like troubles with your mother or, uh, you know, like had this specific traumatic event and blah, 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 blah. Just like kind of took me aback because I don't, I don't know, to to identify it in that, like to quantify the the exact thing that's supposed to not be quantifiable. Like the whole therapy thing is not quantified. It's like very like process oriented and you know step by step or whatever and this is like you get a score if you're if you're doing this well if like this is working for you you get a score um and so i mean this is like the like the things people sometimes go into therapy wanting which is the like look just find what the fuck is wrong with me and fix it right like this is kind of like what this process like this the entire thing is done up a bit like the space explorers in some ways like they go into uh sort of their their uh their their vision state but this idea that oh we're just going to pin down the thing that is traumatizing you the thing that uh is making you feel like a broken person we're going to identify it pin it down and then we're just going to get in there and like little few wrenches little hammers (laughs) yeah you're done you're fixed and I don't know. The the premise of the series, I think from the first, is like obviously questioning whether that's even – like I don't think it's questioning. It's, it's obviously kind of a preposterous view of mm-hmm. uh, like humanity and emotions. Mm-hmm. And yet I think the show does do a good job of expressing why that is a tempting. Um, yeah. That is a tempting offer, especially because like, you know, therapy can be incredibly circular. And feel like it's not going anywhere or you'll have what feel like breakthroughs and, okay, you have better understanding of the self and yet but you still you feel like tools, shit. Yeah. Yeah. But do you have tools to be able to uh, to deal with whatever you're feeling when you f- inevitably feel it again? Yeah. And therapy can also be a very long and painful process. 100%. And, and it can be an incredibly, you know, I can, I'm not going to go too far into it, but I, I had a very intense uh, session yesterday, uh, mm-hmm. and my therapist was like, okay, you might feel terrible for a few days. Like, you might feel very, very, very bad because it's almost like doing surgery. It's like, okay, you, you go in and you're cutting things open, and it's for a therapeutic purpose. It's for a good purpose, but it's going to take a long time to heal from it. So, like, even even the act of healing itself is traumatic sometimes mm-hmm. in itself. And, of course, that's not tempting or fun or easy to process and doesn't fit with the whole consumer side of the world that wants a product to fix things and wants things to have an easy and or not even easy but like a concrete answer right like mm-hmm. it's all a mess uh, yeah. it's truly all a mess there's, there's something i wanted to ask you all about with, with maniac though it also seems like so much of a piece with a lot of other media coming out like particularly like prestige tv like maniac looks a lot like Legion, for instance, Noah Hawley's mm-hmm. uh, superhero series, which itself has some echoes uh, of Fargo as as well. Um, I don't know. This is like retrofuturism seems to be very in right now, and like a mm-hmm. 
an aesthetic that is very alluring. And I'm curious what you, like, I also thought about Prey, honestly. Like, literally, there's a point mm-hmm. where people in the show are saying, ah, the mind is the last frontier, which is literally a poster you find in the opening of Prey. Um, and so I guess I'm curious what y'all make of this idea of our fantasies increasingly turning not to, like, far out visions of the future, but, like, recast versions of the present based on what, like, our grandparents thought the future was going to be. Yeah, I think I think it's almost a little bit more it's a little bit more in our control at least. Like the way that we look at the future right now is anything could fucking happen. <laughs> we don't like what we've begun, like we've started down a rabbit hole that we are making no signs of stopping or, you know, or or, you know, hesitating or whatever we're just like barreling down this sort of path and in the past the things that we were looking at as products of the future were largely like domestic products or products that would replace like you know chores or or you know they would they were like function I don't know how to describe it but they were more like mechanical in operation and less like abstract in some ways. Yeah, yeah. And like when I look at the future now, I think of like like artificial sentience or or uh, you know things being able to make decisions for me rather than in the past. You know, my refrigerator being able to like instantly cook my food. Um, which is much more like mechan- mechanical a service than like sort of like c- cerebral that I think we're like heading towards. Um, so I think it's a little bit more in our in our service in a way that we can kind of control. And they still sort of like need us to function. Like if the dog doesn't poop on the street, the like, the sanitation robot has no job, isn't going to do anything. It isn't going to be like, well, you know what would be better <laughs> is if, you know, we had this new sanit. You know, it's not like it's not like creating new um, protocols or whatever. It just it has it's like one function and then and then it answers that. I think in hopeful times, uh, generally speaking off of that, which I agree and, and also definitely see that sort of almost like brain-body divide or, like, mechanical versus AI mm-hmm. sort of divide almost. Sorry, I keep hitting my microphone. Um, I also think that it, it has something to do with, like, in hopeful times, there is almost, like, a concrete or at least, like, a physical view of the future, right? In the 60s, in the space age, we thought we would have bases on Mars and the moon and all this really cool stuff. There was all this aspirational, cool stuff to look towards. But right now, it feels like we worry about the richest among us all worry about the end of the world. I think everybody worries about the end of the world at this mm-hmm. point. And of course, being apocalyptic is not new to this time that every single human is always worried about the end of the world. But I don't feel that we live in very hopeful times. I don't feel that there is any kind of a coherent view of the future. We're all honestly just like it, Trump is feels like end times, <laughs> you know, and, and all the things happening politically feel very, very, very either end times or, OK, well, we're in the fight of our lives now. Uh, and, and it's very much there is a problem in front of us. But beyond that, I don't know. There's mm-hmm. no aspirational view of a 
space on the moon or cities on the moon or all this other sort of beautiful vision of the future. Even our sci-fi is very, this gets exactly to this point, but even our sci-fi is very either rooted in retrofuturism or very bleak. Um, I guess the expanse kind of splits the difference in a lot of ways, but it's it's not it's not the most hopeful view of the future. We don't have okay, we have Star Trek Discovery, but we don't have the like '90s Star Treks right now that were so aspirational, that were so oh, society can be beautiful. We can yeah. fix all these problems of of need and economics and just go explore space and be awesome and be wonderful. I think there is an element of what the political realities of a given time are and what they mean for how we look at the future. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. For me, it's, I think there's also an element of, there, there's something subversive about taking the aesthetic of these imagined futures with their sort of inherent hopefulness, but also their clunkiness. Uh, yeah. But like creating the world where like, hey, guess what? Uh, we did get like the robot servants and such. And like machines are going <laughs> to run around and, and, and do jobs. And there's going to be all these ways to escape reality and even on this completely different like technological evolutionary branch we end up in the same place if not worse <laughs> right like there's still like very little opportunity for uh younger people not uh like trying to create their own way in the world not like just inheriting wealth for instance um so i think that there's there's something to that as well uh but overall like <laughs> i'm three episodes in I don't know how I feel about Maniac. I am compelled by it. Like I'm going to keep watching it. Yeah. Uh, there's some tremendous. Uh, there's some tremendous performances in it. Yeah. But it is such a hard series to pigeonhole, and there are so many little stylistic ticks that just feel a little bit like self-referential at this point. Yeah, it definitely feels like. Well, I... I, I mean, saw, that's how True Detective was, right? Like, I mean, True Detective, yeah. like, the actual plotting of True Detective was, like, my interest in that show had less to do with where it was going as much as, like, I was just captivated by what I was seeing on the screen. A combination of, like, electric performances and, like, a visual flourish that was just, like, utterly captivating. Um, and I feel like Maniac is, and maybe this is just, you know, you know, part of uh, Carrie's, like, directing style is, like, he is just... His visual, his aesthetic is is a lot of his storytelling, and sort of like the plotting is sort of a means to an end, and not necessarily the central tenet of what he's trying to get across. Mm-hmm. Totally, yeah. I do think it is worth um, a full a full watch because I think there is there are pieces to like pull out of it for a lot of people, like if you are really into visual stuff or you, if you're really into sound, if you're into that sort of design, like I think there's like a lot to be, um, a, like a lot of good things here. If you're, um, there's a lot of like really raw performances. Jonah um, Hill, like the first, epi- I've only seen the first episode, but like Jonah Hill's performance in the first episode. I mean, I know how he's evolved to be like more than just a good comedic actor and just to be a good actor, but like mm-hmm. he just like, I mean, just a little... Ticks. I mean, it was. Just, I was just captivated by his work in the first episode alone, where I was less interested in where Maniac was going, and I was more interested in where he was going, just because the mm-hmm. performance was just so idiosyncratic and strange, and and not in a like hyperbolic way. It was like a very he sold a a very specific kind of character that I was just partially because it's him that I was just mm-hmm. you know like the contrast of like what you know him from and what he's doing now is part of what makes his performance inherently interesting. But I was yeah. just completely taken by 
his specific performance in the first episode that um, I was like, all right, I'm going to have to rewatch this with my wife and then then we're going to have to go forward. And then because there's not as much of the visual flourish stuff that, you know, is part of the larger pitch of the show that seems to come, you know, in the in the episodes after that. Yeah, it's it's definitely not everything that's in the show is in the first episode. The first mm-hmm. episode seems like very much like edgy Netflix drama <laughs> with some comedy in it. And it's going to be kind of weird, um, which is the show, but it gets better. Yeah. Um, I will say like uh, definite content warnings for um, uh Nothing on screen, but like talks of of sexual violence, and uh, there is some like allusions to it, um, visual allusions to it, and then self harm, self harm, and it is definitely there are some gore, uh, gory scenes, which um, are are they're more like kind of ridiculous than you know, um, like actually scary, but they they still do the trick for me at least. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, Maniac is, like, taking place in this, uh, it's possibly framed as maybe an alternate future or, like, an, an alternate reality, but it kind of leaves that setting in the background. Uh, Danielle, your waypoint this week was entirely about the place and the yeah. reality it presents and sort of, like, leaving behind... Uh, heteronormativity and its culture. Uh, can you tell completely. us about it? Completely. Yeah, absolutely. And I know mine's probably going to be a little bit shorter because uh, my vocabulary for dance performances is not as extensive as it is for film or TV or podcasts or whatever else that we do. So bear with me if you are a person who knows a great deal about dance and styles and sort of you know body-based performance art, I guess, is the... The core so waypoint again, audience is what again, you're saying. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, but <laughs> I've been really interested in dance in general, uh, just as a as a type of performance. I've been to a few uh, different types of performance uh, in the last year or so, and I actually even also went to the Metropolitan Opera this week. So I'm uh, very, very near and dear to my heart uh, are the theatrical experiences. But Kink House is what I saw, and it is running for the next couple of days. It, it had a limited run the end of September to early October at the La Mama Experimental Theater here in New York. Um, I'm going to read a tiny bit of the description just to like do some setting. And then I'll tell you a little bit about what I took away from it. Again, as a person who is interested but has a very limited vocabulary in what dance performance art is and means and so on and so forth. So Gunner Montana Productions will once again channel their under unparalleled powers of spatial transformation to create Kink House, a brutal underground nightclub where anything goes, no fucks are given, and fierceness is always welcome. Kink House is not for the faint of heart and will depict the raw, dark, and sometimes outlandish sexual journey inside us all. So that actually sounds a lot wilder than... Uh, <laughs> Than it is. It was a uh, really, really wonderful, and I found very accessible. That an hour-long uh, performance of a number of set pieces, dance pieces set to different types of music. It all took place in this sort of general underground club atmosphere. Even when you walk in uh, to the space, to the theater, there was a sort of like, oh, it looks like a party has happened here. Maybe a sex party. Maybe a sex dungeon kind of thing. There were like you know, cups strewn around, like neon, you know, like plastic solo cups, but they were neon all strewn around. There were like articles of clothing all strewn around. Uh, in the woman's room, uh, there was a person like <coughs> half passed out. It's as part of the setting. Uh, there was a woman like half passed out, 
like mumbling about this is supposed to be my party and my weekend and like like you know sprawled in a stall basically as just I don't know what happened in the men's room. I imagine it was even more interesting, but that's what was in the ladies' room. Uh, and then you go into the actual performance, and uh, it was this really, really cool, like, black box theater that also had some stadium seating, and uh, they used the whole theater. They used all the every element of the theater uh, to do these sort of dance performances. Uh, a couple of them really stood out to me. I'll, I'll sort of uh, shout out a couple of them. One was, and all of them had to do with queer culture, queer life, uh, both sort of celebrating and making fun and complicating sort of a lot of notions about queer club life and nightlife and things like that. Uh, so uh, there was one piece uh, very early on that near and dear to my heart, and it was about working out. It was about being queer and being obsessed with having, like, uh, the hard body. I mean, it was more oriented towards, like, gay dudes, this particular part, but... Yeah, I felt it too. Uh, and so <laughs> out comes this beautiful dancer, you know, perfect abs, perfect body. Uh, and there were two sort of like helper dancers who were like setting up gym equipment for him. And there was like a, a treadmill set up. And then there was like an acrobatic piece that happened over like a, a bench press and all kinds of things. And that was all set to uh, Tovalo's I Like Them Young, which was playing. So it's like very dancey, very clubby, and like all these like beautiful acrobatics and ballet and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, Rob, go for it. Well, but I'm curious. This was something that came up in a review I read from, I think, uh, Boys Culture. Uh, but sure. it was it was sort of interrogating this idea that on, on, the, on the one hand, apparently there's some like text in the show where they're sort of critiquing um, gay culture, sometimes uh, erasure of non- uh, idealized bodies in some yes, ways, like very like, much so. You know, I mean, literally, this line of the show is basically like, you know, if you're a gay man and you don't have a six pack, you might as well not exist. Yep. But then the criticism is the show's full of a lot of dudes with six packs. Like I was looking at some videos and pictures, and it's very Fight Club in a lot of ways. Just lots of <laughs> just lots of cut looking dudes. Uh, oh, and yeah. so I'm curious how the show. Does the show have a message of like body positivity that actually rings true to you? Yeah, yes and no. So honestly, uh, so these dancers are all pretty traditionally attractive. There's there's some body diversity there. Some folks are bigger than others, and some people are more like muscular, and others are more thin. And there's like there there is some body diversity there. And there there are uh, women dancers. There's male dancers. There's all all kinds of stuff. And there's a lot of gender play in between. There are definitely like. Outfits are worn that are, you know, more masculine or feminine and people change on stage as they're dancing and things like that definitely happen. Uh, the piece in question uh, was actually the next piece. And that's that's performed by a dancer who is not have a six pack like he he's, you know, a good looking mm -hmm. person, obviously. But uh, he comes out and he is sort of uh, sort of fixing a house set. Basically, he's like fixing a backstage set and he is listening to a tape that is like. Here's some vocabulary for for being a gay man, basically, and it's and it's very funny, and it is like interrogating all these things. It's talking about gym rat is the vocabulary there, and it it says like person who spends excessive time in the gym, and then it goes into that six pack line, and he actually has this reaction like, oh no, I might as well be dead because I don't have a six pack. Like it's a very visceral reaction that he has to this, and it transitions into really intense homophobia, and this is where I'll put a content warning. Uh, and I'll just say the F word for the bad F word uh, for for those who might uh, have issues with that. But like they go pretty deep into that kind of stuff as well. And they definitely critique 
Um, there, there is both a laughing tone uh, to, to some of the sort of um, idealized male form uh, aspects, especially during the, the gym set also has like dildos that are used as weights, like <laughs> literally like playing with weight, like doing curls with like, j- like comically large dildos. So like it's definitely winking and nodding and laughing at a lot of this stuff. And then the piece that, again, the, the piece that goes into like gay vocabulary uh has that portion about the six pack and the idealized male form. And then it goes very, very deep into homophobia right after that. It's, it says, you know, the F word, uh, and the F word goes up in giant lights, like just bright stage lights in the back. And the point of that one is to convert the F word to fierce in your head. Like that's the whole thing. And then it goes into a lip sync piece and then it goes into a couple of other pieces that were uh, really awesome uh, very, very cool. It does go a little bit into some sort of, like, kink um, tropes pretty lightly. This was not, like, an X-rated show, even though I know that the description seemed like, oh, man, you're going to you're gonna see some shit here. It was like, <laughs> no, this is definitely, like, a PG-13, you Well, the review, I had somebody very... brought their 12-year-old daughter to the show, like... Yeah, honestly, <laughs> yeah. I, I, there was nothing there that was not, like, pretty... <laughs> Fairly tame in terms of like okay, but it was it was obviously speaking uh, to power dynamics. It was speaking you know very de- deliberately. There was a piece that was wonderful and amazing uh, that spoke very deliberately to sort of like a a top bottom sort of thing sort of situation. Uh, and there was a piece with a woman dancer who kind of walked out and had two male dancers like in chains kind of thing and and had them doing like a, a puppy. Kind of thing that was that was, was, was the show as visually cool as like the stills I've seen look because the yes. stills like it's all like day glow colors like really yep. dramatic lighting um, just enough fog to make things look sort of menacing and noirish yes. like it looks <laughs> like just a cool space to inhabit. It was incredible. I didn't want to leave. At the end, I kept taking selfies uh, <laughs> with different elements of the of the set and the staging because it was it was amazing. It was really visually incredibly beautiful so again even if as a person with like no real vocabulary like i i would i would classify some of the moves looked like oh this looks like ballet dance or more traditional dance whereas other moves were like okay modern or jazz or hip-hop or 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 something else along those lines the final piece i'll i'll mention uh that has to do with how cool it looked and just how amazing the staging was there were a number of mannequins uh sort of brought out neon mannequins because of course everything was neon in this show uh, that were brought out, and there was like a slowed down, sad version of Robin's uh, "Dancing with Myself." Right, that's the name of the song that everybody loves. But it was like slowed down. <laughs> she has down other songs that sad. are very good too. Robin is an excellent musician. She is. I love her very much. I, there may have even been other Patrick's Robin had it with fake in this fans. show. I'm just saying. I understand. It's, that's a great song, but it it is. Celebrate this is like a sad catalog. version. dancing with myself and also mannequins and it was like a very sad like ballet piece and it was it was a a dancer came out and was sort of like taking shots at each mannequin and dancing with them and it ends on this very very sad note this very empty note that that really does sort of say like okay we've had a lot of fun with the vocabulary of clubbing and nightlife and you know the using dildos as weights and all kinds of like fun and funny stuff uh, but there was a real sense of emptiness and longing and sadness uh, that it sort of ends on. So it really is, I think, commenting on several levels of like, okay, this nightlife thing can be real fun and real good, 
Uh, and it can be freeing, it can be liberating, it can be awesome, but also sometimes you're lonely and sometimes you're sad and sometimes you're dancing with yourself and mannequins and taking shots with mannequins. So Kink House is awesome. <laughs> if you can, if you can uh, get tickets in the next three days, because uh, I think it's actually only running until the end of the week. Um, highly recommended. And also I just really just want to go to more dance performances and maybe take some sort of class or like le- just learn more about this because I think it's 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 a fascinating field that I would love to know more about. Rob, you said you saw a video clips somewhere? Like most people are not going to be able to go see this. Like where where did you catch some of if people can get like a flavor of like what's going on here? Uh, I'm going to have to link that in the show notes because okay. the it's on a Vimeo channel, but it's like on a freelance producer's Vimeo channel. So I think it's actually <laughs> right. showing, but I think it's, it, it is embedded in the uh, theater's own website. It's built yeah. for this performance. So you can just watch a video that's like more like a sizzle reel of what you'll encounter, but it doesn't look like they're using the same space that they use for the production. It's just more of a like stylized uh, version of like a trailer for the actual show. Yeah, it's just, I think it's sort of some material around it, but... Yeah. Yeah. In general, I guess, I, I, generally to, to, to speak more about... I, I'm just I'm very interested in things that interrogate and also play with queer culture and do so in new and interesting ways. So, yeah. All right, so that is Gunnar Montana's Kink House. Uh, and it's spelled like the... Uh, the gamer glasses, Gunner, but that is, that yes. is I, at first I was like, Gunner <laughs> sponsoring this? This seems like kind of a weird corporate initiative, but it turns out no. Uh, Gunner Montana is the artist, and uh, you will yes. you will see Gunner Montana in that video we'll be linking. Uh, so you, like, you if you want to check that out, hurry up, see if you can get tickets, because it sounds like it's, it's leaving pretty soon. Uh, but it sounds like yeah. an awesome evening, Danielle. Oh, it was. It was amazing. Sounds so fun. All right, we are going to take a little break and uh, play some kind of ad, or apparently, in the case of last week's show, no ad at all, just a little uh, ad break jingle that fades back in on me. Uh, But this week, you know, again, could be anything. Like, just embrace the suspense. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. Uh, Hope you enjoyed whatever the hell just happened. Uh, Anyway. (laughs) I uh, bought it. Whatever it was, I bought it. Uh, boy, that's leaving yourself open to a whole lot of things. I've enlisted in the foreign military now. Okay, Patrick, see you later. Uh, Lord and Lieutenant. Here we go. Uh, so my waypoint this week is a little bit less underground and certainly is not exactly new. Uh, but lately I've been reading Matt Fraction's run on Hawkeye, uh, which started in 2013. 
And I only read like the first two trade paperbacks of, uh, of the Hawkeye series. And I don't know, like, I think literally I picked this up because I found it in a remaindered section in a bookstore. And I like <laughs> Matt Fraction generally, like I enjoy uh, Fraction's work. So I decided to check it out. And I didn't realize that apparently the entire series is already kind of an oddity because it was Marvel giving one of their top writers sort of a creative blank check uh, and saying like, hey, make like a high-end monthly series uh, for us. And you can have, we're going to put you with one of our best artists, uh, David Aha, and see what you guys can come up with. And that's that sounds awesome. <laughs> but apparently, if you start reading the series, you'll start noticing weird inconsistencies tonally. Uh, new artists tag in, uh, which is pretty standard for comics, but like the tonal shifts and art styles really start to clash a little bit as the series goes on because it turns out sustaining a monthly pace for a comic series is like brutal. But when this series is on, it is really fucking on. I'm just quoting Rilo Kiley now, which is actually fitting, which is actually fitting for the series uh, because this is kind of the better son uh, daughter of of Marvel Comics series in a lot of ways. It follows Hawkeye and his life not as an adventure as a as an Avenger, but instead just as a dude trying to make the best of things in New York and trying to get his shit together. It's very Bojack in in that way. Is that this is a Hawkeye and a Clint Barton that is very convinced that he's just kind of a congenital fuck up and yet somehow as sort of an older mentor figure he also needs to be like an elder statesman on the avengers and the framing device for this entire series is it's actually about the two hawkeyes there's clint who's the original hawkeye and now he's mentoring uh kate bishop who is the new hawkeye uh and sort of trying to train her to be better Hawkeye, but it, it starts to rapidly spiral from that and becomes more about their effects on each other. What what does Clint really have to teach? Uh, what does Kate really need to learn? Uh, and that's sort of where things begin, but I don't know. I just find it a, I find it a fascinating series because this is one of those uh, series where it really makes me appreciate the artist's effect on a comic series like often yeah writers get the credit because they will create like the plot and the overall like tonal structure of a series but the way Aha tells these stories and lays out these pages I don't know there's something like incredibly there's lots of like really funny like editing gags basically uh the crotch in- gag had me I don't know if I've actually l- laughed out loud at a comic I don't read a ton of comics but like I don't there's a there is a a crotch uh, gag in this the third second or third issue that like had me literally howling because it is such a clever use of the medium in which you can only get away with this in comics right like there are all sorts of superhero storytelling that's happening these days like you can get your superheroes in all sorts of different formats and people tend to prefer them um, the mass audience prefers them in a, in a live action form but there's there are gags that happen in this series I've, I've read the first three issues where like 
it can only happen in this panel by panel storytelling. And there are moments where it flashes in a way that like, aha, like this is someone showing like their expertise in a medium and doing a certain type of trick that just wouldn't work any other way. So uh, I know that everybody had a little bit of a chance to look over at least, uh, you know, a few pages from this thing, a couple issues. I'm curious uh, what, what y'all made of it. Did, did you, you know, did you find yourself like, did Aha's work like come across as like something different and special for you within the comics medium from what you've experienced? Yeah, uh, definitely. I think that, uh, you know, I don't have a super big familiarity with comics in general and definitely not with Hawkeye. Um, which every time I say Hawkeye, I just hear hot guy. Hot guy. So, <laughs> not wrong. House, hot guy. Not you wrong. Know. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's interesting how, and this may be like the, the most lukewarm take of all time. Please, but it's, give it. <laughs> it just. <laughs> Come on. Wait, I actually don't think I can say it. No, it too late. Sound... We're over the precipice. <laughs> Gotta do it. Just the way that like the the pictures are really about depicting. <laughs> uh huh. Continue. The pictures. The pictures. The pictures. Oh, the photos. The fo- the 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 drawings. They depict action, <laughs> and that is really interesting to me. Well, I think what you might that- maybe if uh, if I can pick up the baton is like there's a. Uh, a sense of motion and flow to the artistry that uh, I don't I don't always get a sense of in other comics, right? Like there's a way that the panels flow off one another, and where like the the art is, is linking up with the writing in a way that like creates a sense of momentum to like the action, like especially like the car chase sequence that happens, where like the way the panels are structured, like you actually get a feeling of speed that doesn't necessarily always come across when you're reading a comic. It's like you may be seeing a car, uh, you know. Uh, 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 ra- you know, racing across the, the the panel, but you don't necessarily feel it in the same way. And especially for Hawkeye as a character, right? Like he he is his you know superpower, you know, or, you know, or his skill is using these arrows. And I think the panels successfully should, like demonstrate like a sense of flow that like normally is better portrayed in live action or even a cartoon because you can kind of like show that in like a seamless animation um, uh-huh. or sequence. And a comic can't do that, right? It has to capture that in like a more stilted sense. And I think part of I think part of what you're trying to say, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, is that how effective the comic is at actually conveying that in a sort of panel structure where you you really do get a sense of the movement of a scene um, in a way that I don't yeah. normally always feel. He yeah. uses like inserts, like specifically actually uses yeah. like in, what you would do, like B-roll or insert shots of like a very specifically him throwing the pennies or, you know, like a very, very tiny specific action. And even the panels themselves for the inserts are actually small. So you, there's a whole bunch of them that actually give you a sense of like keyframes in certain ways, which I think is so cool. There's, yeah. He uses that to great effect, I think, in the second issue, which opens on the shootout in a like hotel pool. And it's mm-hmm. it's a funny thing because... This series has that like almost Whedon-esque like, hey, it's just a fun uh, time with lots of like witty banter and everything. This is an incredibly violent series. Like there are a lot of people being hurt in this series. There are a lot of people who do not care who gets caught in the crossfire to an extent. 
do Clint and Kate even really care that much who gets caught in the crossfire? Maybe not so much in this early comic, but that second issue opens on a series of like close-up shots of like bullets with little tracer marks uh, flying through the air, like hitting two civilians who are just like black silhouettes um, with uh, you know their clothes are just like you know like white swim trunks, white bikini, but they're just completely abstracted. But they just like got brutally killed in the background. And then it's a cut to, you know, brass casings hitting the ground. It's the splash as the heroes, like, dive into the pool. And it creates, like, without any, like, corny automatopoeia or anything like that. No, like, brap. No, splash. It's all, like, <laughs> this is a really noisy and, like, sensor, like, sensorily rich comic. Like, this is a comic where... I can like hear traffic when I look at these panels. You know what I mean? Like I can, yeah. I can yeah. feel the way like how humid uh, like that street is in the early in the series. He's trying to like cross between cabs. Um, I like yeah. I don't know. It just it, it feels there's a sense of placeness and uh, like yeah. sensory stimulation that's unusual for me. Yeah, it's super. I think yeah, that's kind of what I meant by the pictures are actions or whatever. <laughs> But <laughs> we're all learning new vocabulary. This is what part of Waypoint. A lot is. of it today, you know. But I think that the um, the the visceralness is so precise. Like in in a lot of the comics that I've read, aren't I've read a lot of like manga, which are a lot more like the ones that I've read are much more. I don't know, flamboyant is not the right word, but, like, much more, like, like in your face about, like, the action and it's, you know, it's moving everywhere and the punches, like, there's a million lines to show how fast exaggerated he's punching. Yeah, it's like, super exaggerated yeah. and, and over the top. Um, uh, but this is, like, so kind of stark and non... It's, like, not detail oriented but it's detail oriented in the action not in like the the drawing itself like it's not there's not you can't see like all of the uh uh pores i don't know why i always go to pores Pours. on people's faces show me the pores <laughs> to talk, to talk about detail um but it's not it's it's really um selective and detailed in in what it does choose to show and it does feel for me it's not as fluid maybe as other things I've read I feel like I'm kind of watching it in stop motion but that creates a tension for me between each moment because Hawkeye is like a is, is you know Every time he, like, draws the arrow, he's like, okay, hold your breath. And then with the release, like, I can feel, like, the tension of the breath. And so each frame kind of has that cadence to it of, like, this tension of, like, breathe in, hold it, and then, like, release. That um, is really, um, like, captivating to me. I just I just want to add that I love the New York touches to it, specifically Brooklyn touches, specifically Bed-Stuy touches. <laughs> yeah. I love that he lives in Bed-Stuy uh, and deals with all, all Bed-Stuy basically gentrifying. And this is 2013 mm-hmm. was the first issue. I read the first couple or so. Um, and yeah, it was it's so, so, so specific to that neighborhood, which is traditionally it was always a lower income neighborhood. It was traditionally, you know, like 
even even when I moved here in 2015, people were like, stay away from Bed-Stuy. And I was like, no, why? Why even say that for in the first place? And second, um, it is like a rapidly gentrifying area. You can walk down the street there and there are some places that look like they've looked for a long time. And there are places that look like, oh, okay. Williamsburg, basically. Well, and that's like, <laughs> like it's very intense. And it's one of the yeah. framing devices yeah. of this whole series is that in the opening, yeah. uh, he buys his apartment building. He's come into money somehow, and people are trying yeah, to how? run out. Like I have no idea. Like literally, I don't. Sort know of like wink, wink, not not Avengers. I don't know. Yeah. basically what yeah. it seems to be suggesting. But uh, he, people are trying to run uh, the residents of his tenement building out, and so he decides, decides, fuck it, I'll buy the building, and now it's mine. And so basically, the entire framing device of the series is like he's created kind of a little like working class Alamo within New York in 2013, which. There are a lot of forces, and in this case, is mostly expressed by like Russian mobsters and uh, their real estate development tie-ins to try and run these people out. And Hawkeye basically is there to put a stop to it, and they like they don't go away; they they just keep coming. Uh, so I, I think that is a really important part of the series because this is also a series about Hawkeye becoming part of a community. Um, Hawkeye trying to not be like a solo act and trying to be like a decent neighbor, somebody who's like present uh, for, for people. Um, I encourage everybody to stick with it. Cause the last like three issues I think are this like tour de force. And there's an artist, there's an artist switch in the middle of it um, that is totally completely different, but they do this backstory issue on a really scary villain they introduced late uh, called Kazi. And Kazi is from some, like, it's like implied maybe like Balkan uh, war. Uh, he's like a war orphan, a survivor who is carrying around a massive amount of like trauma and anger from the experience, but has channeled all of that into becoming like an utterly ruthless assassin. And his sort of catchphrase is, like he dresses up like a clown. He dresses up like a like a um, nope. Not, no, thank not you. even like a. Uh, it's almost more like a mime, um, just like a single nope, teardrop. Absolutely not. <laughs> and his, <laughs> his catchphrase is "I I came from hell." And so uh, in I hate this. Is this the clowns that we had last year? Is this the clown epidemic? Is that what they were drawing uh, from? No. no, this is this is a cooler clown. Uh, but anyway, okay. so like late in the okay. series, uh, Francesco Francesco Francavilla uh, <laughs> steps into the series and creates this backstory on Kazi uh, that is all like exaggerated colors. It's all like fiery oranges, like neon uh, blues, and like lurid purples, and that's his entire palette. Oh, like nice. everything is heightened, and every panel is where Aha tends to draw these really like neatly structured, almost like forensic diagrams of pages. Mm, yeah. um, Francovella's panels are like literally shattering across the page. Um, Wait, can you show us? Let me find a... I'm going to hold something up to the camera, so that's not going to be the best. Uh, I'll embed a picture on... Um, yeah, there we go. In the post. In the post. Fixing it in but post. I want to see it but now. Yeah, uh, <laughs> okay. We need a Natalie reaction. Ooh. Oh yeah! That's oh my extremely god! Good literal shattering. There are fragments of panels all over the place in a in a 
yeah. breaking point in the center. Really incredible. Right. And I'll, I'll embed that picture in the post, but it's this really cool, like, there are some examples where a new artist rolls onto the series to, like, basically, Aha started to fall behind. There's a really great piece on this uh, in the Comics Journal. The monthly pace was too much to sustain. They started cutting corners and bringing on other artists. Um, and there's some places where that's really incongruous. But Frank Avella comes in and does something completely stylistically different that imparts a necessary and really elevating uh, feel to the series. And then the next issue after that is told entirely from the perspective of Hawkeye's dog. Oh, I yes. I love this immediately. Please. There are no, like, there's only a couple words because the dog only understands a couple words. And everything Cute. is about the dog, like, <laughs> it's assembling. A, it's clever. It's beautiful. Like, it's all, like, the dog is assembling relationships and understandings of the world through scent. Oh. And that's depicted via these uh, really elaborate diagrams and panels. And that's how this this first half of the run ends. Um so you just got three dog owners' attention, very, very wrapped right there. <laughs> yeah, it's extremely cute, uh, but it's also just a really impressive series. So, uh, hi- does he does he rename the dog? Don't tell me what it is, but does he do it? I think uh, yes, but the dog okay. still knows its old name. Okay, deep. Okay. Uh, and uh, one thing I would put this in a in a sort of broader context as someone that has largely entered. Uh, Marvel, like I grew up mostly on DC stuff and uh, mostly became interested in Marvel and have more or less like switched allegiance to Marvel, like largely due to the MCU. Like of all the characters in like the MCU, like Hawkeye has gotten such a short shrift uh, in terms of characterization. Like the, he, like the, I always bounce these things off my wife to see like uh, she, she, you know, she was my resident normal person to say like, well, how is this? How- <laughs> That you know, because she's not going reading Wikipedia pages and stuff like that. Like she ain't got time for that. And it's like, uh, it's like Hawkeye, the character fucking sucks. Like what he shoots arrows, and like that's all the Avengers movies like give Hawkeye. Like he has a brief scene in Age of Ultron where they give him some grounding and characterization, and it's really helpful. But it's like a very small piece in like the cinematic universe. So it's like if your only exposure to Hawkeye is like. Why is Iron, why are Iron Man and like Captain America and the Hulk hanging out with this dude who occasionally shoots air like CG arrows like um this like this series in particular like does a really terrific job of like giving you an insight into like what that character could be if he was like given like a television show or something where they could actually expand out and it doesn't have to be a world ending epic like he just he's a character that doesn't fit nearly as well in the kind of stuff they're doing in the MCU. Um, and they only hint along the edges of what that character is. Like, again, that Age of Ultron scene is basically all you get across, um, you know, the, the the 10 years of movies they've done. Um, and I think this series, like, as someone that hasn't read like, any Hawkeye comics, but, like, was like, there's got to be more to this character, or else, like, why would he be in the Avengers? Like, that's all the MCU leaves you with? Like, this series is, like, a great entryway into, oh, this is why this character could be interesting, and this is what the MCU, like, has, like, like terribly gotten wrong with this character um and so i from that angle if you are someone like me that mostly watches the movies i would highly recommend this series because it already got me interested in wanting to read more about him because it just came at it in a way that the movies have not at all and it doesn't help that the movies that it's jeremy renner playing him oh jeremy renner renner's fine Mm. Eh. What? He said some things. Oh well, oh, okay. yeah. Well, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. Fair. <laughs> oh right. There was. Oh right. Yeah. Right. The Black Widow stuff. Yeah. No. Fuck. I mean, the, the guys. Yeah. That was bad. The guys of Freddy Pops. Threw her under the damn bus. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, I what did he say? about that. Oh, just go read it. We can. It's yeah. not great. It's not awesome. Uh, sorry. Sorry. Jeremy Renner hate there for a yeah. second. No, that's fair. No, fair. I completely <laughs> forgot about because that was. Yeah. I think that was during the. Uh, was, that, was that during the Infinity War stuff? I don't, whatever. It was bad. It, it, was may so pre- it may have been Ultron. Yeah. Yeah. It was Ultron. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. bad. Seriously, we were talking about the one where he's great. like uh, Black Widow's uh, total slot, right? That's where he was right. like, yep. yeah, basically because and then he laughed. Yeah, yeah, like he again, cracked up. A total pots. And he kept going on and on with it. Like he called her like every, not every, but like so many slurs for women. It was just like. The fuck is this? No, fair. Yeah, anyway, fair. So, no, truly dunkworthy. I agree. Um, <laughs> but I, the other, yeah, the other part of this is like reading books like these. I think also calls attention to how stylistically cloying the Marvel verse has become in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like, and even the Netflix version, like they are so stylistically similar to each other on a lot of on a lot of levels oh, yeah. that, like, yeah, it was it was fresh in Daredevil, and then immediately became unfresh when it was just. Let's roll out four shows that, I mean, Luke Cage, but even Luke Cage aesthetic, like Luke Cage's approach and like tone was different, but like there's a, aesthetically they are all like just, we're dark and maybe Jessica Jones gets a little bright and, mm. but yeah, yeah, no, you're yeah. right. I get, they're pretty much cut from the same cloth in a very boring way. Right. I just don't like, I like, I don't see the space for a series like this. Like, I think maybe the closer we come is some of the Thors. Um, like in terms of tone, mm. but like I don't see a grounded everyday series like this being told effectively in the way uh, Marvel's been handled on screen of late. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, so highly recommend checking that out. Um, the second half of the series does kind of start to like that monthly pace begins to cause the series to tank a little bit, uh, but it does have some really interesting through lines and comes to a really interesting. Uh, conclusion that sort of changes things for uh, leaves leaves a lot of these characters in a very different place from where they began. Uh, anyway, uh, speaking of like entry level stuff and first encounters with things, uh, I've never seen John Carpenter's Halloween, which makes wow. which makes this next waypoint I think a little interesting because it's a deep dive into the background history of uh, Halloween led by Amy Nicholson and produced by The Ringer. Uh, Patrick, you care to tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, horror fanatics, including uh, Danielle, like their Halloween is, is, is in the air. It's the 40th anniversary. It's wild to think that it's been four decades since that original movie uh, came out. Um, and just the amount of history and influence that I think it's easy to forget, like how defining horror was in, in so many ways. I mean, they were, you know, it more or less invented the slasher genre, at least like the modern interpretation of it. Um, and I, I think you should go back. I think you would enjoy it. Uh, 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 Rob, it is not necessarily like, you know, just it's not as scary because of just you've seen so much of what largely because of what Halloween influenced. But it remains like a, a very tense film. I, st- I still think a scary film um, and uh, is, is, is unlike some of. Like I like the fog, um, but there are Carpenter films that don't hold up as well. <laughs> um, Halloween, the thing. There are other. There are films in his catalog that hold up exceptionally well. I think the Halloween continues to be um, a tremendous film, and so I was interested because yes, the for the 40th anniversary, there's a uh, new film coming out uh, from David Gordon Green, uh, co-written by Danny McBride of all people, um, because he commonly works with uh, David Gordon Green on a bunch of television series and movie stuff, um, in which. Uh, they're doing the, the the fairly unique thing of uh, ignoring 
all the sequels. Um, my wife and I are currently marathoning the Halloween movies. There are nine. There are uh, yeah. nine cannot nine in the original canon, and then there are two of the Rob Zombie uh, films. Um, so eleven in total, and we're currently on number six, The Curse of Michael Myers or The Revenge of Michael Myers. One of those. It's not a particularly good one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I'm just I'm just thinking a lot about the Halloween series, and so the idea of like I've watched documentaries, I've I've read Wikipedia, I've read articles, but. Um, I think the podcast is such an interesting format to unpack a a series that has such a history. And the first episode of of uh, Halloween Unmasked uh, by Amy Nicholson is is out. It's it, it largely focuses on John Carpenter as a creator. You know, it touches a little bit on Halloween. You know, discussing how the new Halloween film is sort of like a Me Too ish feminist reaction to the original film, which is largely. Um, terrifying because of the fact that it crystallized, you know, the feeling that a lot of women have of being um, stalked or watched, you know, it often doesn't end in necessarily being knifed in your own home. But I, I, every time I have watched Halloween or had discussions with Halloween, when uh, there have been women around, um, everyone has some sort of story of, oh, that scene reminded me of X or, oh, like this happened to me. And you could pluck something from Halloween and the, the very, um, uh, like the reaction it, it brings out in a lot of people who've had a lot of different experiences. Um, and, th- and this one dives into like, well, where did, where did it come from? You know, where did John Carpenter come from? And like you would, uh, part of what's interesting is I learned so much uh, that felt contradictory to the stereotype I made in my head of who John Carpenter must have been, which is like someone who has made films like The Thing and Halloween, uh, a lot of uh, very uh, sort of out there, thrilling science fiction and horror films. You think like, oh, he must have been like, a recluse, like someone who just like didn't talk to anyone and was creating his own stories. And part of that's true because he grew up in a, a log cabin in the middle of town. Like there was only yep. one log cabin. It wasn't in the woods. It was a log cabin in the middle of town next to the campus. Very strange. But he was also like the most popular kid in school. He played guitar on the bus and would like lean choruses of singing. Like he was uh, um, elected class president. Um, those are not things that you would necessarily associate with grungy John Carpenter out here making, you know, weird ass, uh, movies. Um, and so, you know, and it, it talks about how so much of Halloween was and its notion of evil. I think part of what, uh, um, uh, what's his face got wrong when he, Rob Zombie got wrong. What a lot of horror movies get wrong is they spend so much time trying to explain the why. And part of the reason Halloween holds up, part of the reason it was so terrifying as a film in 1978, was that it's unconcerned with why. It just is. Um, Michael Myers is just a presence. There's a reason he is just, you know, the it's he's not called it in the original film, but the moniker that uh, Michael Myers later took on um, was The Shape, which is just a really creepy name because it, mm. um, and it, it helps underscore what Halloween as a film was tapping into was that it wasn't necessarily about Michael Myers, wasn't necessarily about who this character was or why he was doing what he was doing. It was the shape is more like ethereal, more uh, metaphorical, like it is more relatable when it's just you can, you know, think back on your own life and experiences you've had where maybe you've had encounters like that or, or ones that are similar. And so, you know, he grew up uh, in the, the South in a particularly racist town. I mean, there was a lot of racism happening in the South in that era uh, regardless, but, you know, he recounts... Yeah, Bowling Green, I think. Bowling right? Green, yeah. He recounts, yeah. like, these really, I mean, 
truly unbelievable stories where like you think you understand or have read about racism and then he talks about how there was uh, one time where uh, one of his friends, his father was in the car, a, a black man was crossing the road, he sped up his car, hit him, killed him, went over to a payphone, called the police and said, hey, I hit this guy, come get the body. Like, I mean, truly, I mean, just just evil. Like that, it's, and, uh, or, or there were instances where he would find himself in, uh, you know, his friends were going out at night to the side of town where, you know, most of the black people lived and they'd bring guns and they'd go and find people who were on their porches and they'd just, just shoot from their car, just idly shooting at these people. Um, so, I mean, this was the kind of world that he grew up in and he talks about the, the conflict that he had where, like, how do you reconcile, you know, a, a world around you that is completely, like, seems d- devoid of empathy and kindness um, and yet, like, some of these people are your friends because, like, you have, like, similar interests. But, like, oh, on Friday nights, they go around just randomly shooting people. Um, and so it was, like, that sense of, like, evil that he saw combined with an encounter he had where he went to, you know, a local mental institution. You know, this is an era where we're, like, we were not taking care of these people. Like, this is where folks with um, uh, that were mentally disturbed had, had, had struggles were just dumped off. Like it was just, oh, society just doesn't want to see these people just throw them into this this dumpster of, of, a, of a facility. We'll call it a facility. We'll call it an institution, but it's not actually about helping, rehabilitating, or trying to to uh, meaningfully make a difference in these people's lives. And he, he talks of an instance in which he was walking through, and there was someone in the corner that just looked at him with these dead eyes as though nothing was there, and as though that person, all they wanted to do was just to come up and kill him. And he said those do- those dead eyes, like the lack of humanity that he saw in there like those things informed you know the character that would eventually become uh, michael myers in, in halloween so I, I highly recommend people seek it out it's uh, i'm excited to see where it goes from here like specifically i'm excited because um as a horror buff and someone that, that gets excited when they find a series that has eight sequels because i'm just curious <laughs> to see how they manage to sustain it but often the coverage or the analysis or the understanding of these movies um or, or these series is, is rooted just in that original work um, and not in the works that that followed that tried to ape or imitate um, or just financially exploit, you know, nostalgia or, or a certain template that was set forward. And so they've, uh, Amy Nicholson's already said that she plans to do like deep dives into the subsequent films because there is interesting stuff there and where it goes. Like, for example, there's a, a long trope in slasher films of which Halloween doesn't participate in and yet became cr- critical in movies like Friday the 13th and, and all sorts of uh, other spinoffs um, that came from it in which uh, a lot of slasher films adopt like a very uh, puritanic conservative ideology in which uh, teenagers that engage in sex, drugs, anything that was like, you know, you shouldn't be doing, those were the ones that, be, like, the moment you saw a woman, like, uh, bearing her breasts, it's like, okay, well, the knife is coming around the corner. Like, the moment you saw mm-hmm. um, someone smoking weed, like, oh, like, the knife is coming around the corner. Like, they, for, like, for films that were, like, pitched as transgressive or, like, rebellious because, like, you shouldn't be seeing this, like, the actual punishment doled out was to, <laughs> like, kids uh, doing things that, there was nothing inherently wrong with them. Um, and Halloween didn't really do that. And yet um, a lot of the films that reference Halloween used Halloween's template, um, adopted it. I mean, yes, Halloween has like teens and sex and drinking, but it is not, oh, the moment that appears on screen, that's why being their target. Like, you know, the shape is a, 
a villain who, you know, picks on Laurie Strode, but not because she's a woman. It just like she just happened to be the person that um, that he came across. And so, yeah, there's a lot in there. I'm excited to 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 hear more about it. I'm excited to watch the rest of the series. And um, Danielle, I'm curious, like you, I, what is your history with Halloween? I know you were equally excited for like this podcast series. So I'm curious if you listened to it or if not, then like what you've just thought of Halloween in general. Oh yeah. I listened to it. I loved it. I was like, Oh, the whole time yeah. I was kind of like, Oh my God, I didn't know that. Cause I think like you, I'm also very like, whenever I get those little details about something that I've loved forever, you know, I, I like, my God, I'd practically spring out of the seat with excitement. Uh, especially, uh, I really liked the little touches. Uh, there were only only a little bit of Jamie Lee Curtis in this episode, but uh, a little bit with her, a little bit of the Me Too stuff, and also her kind of actually talking about, like, oh, being Janet Lee's daughter actually was, like, I I knew that, and I, I had made that connection with Psycho, but it did, I didn't fully, like, oh, okay, I, this was a really, really big deal and a really, like, very, very interesting connection because Psycho is also credited with being sort of a proto-slasher in certain ways. Like, it's not... A slasher film, you know, the way that we think of them. Halloween. Well, yeah, it doesn't indulge in the violence in the that. same way that, yeah. like, sla- like, Halloween. I mean, Halloween's violent, but it's not uh, grotesque or, or over the top, in, at least the original, yeah. in the way that a lot of those films would later, like the Friday the 13th, that your, your Freddy Krueger's, like, those Buckets were. Blood. Yeah, you were often yeah. seeing them yeah. because, like, especially the sequels where it's like, I just want to see a creative way this person is is killed um and but yeah i mean absolutely i mean like psycho is you know if if halloween is what crystallized the template and popularized it like psycho is like the you know the the original germ that uh you know can halloween doesn't exist without psycho yeah absolutely absolutely so yeah i i kind of it it really crystallized that uh distinction for me of like oh these two women who are you know related mother and daughter really are sort of like mothers of the genre in certain ways or, or or mothers of the face of the genre in certain ways, which I I just was like, oh my God, yeah, that makes so much sense. I just never really fully sort of in my brain committed to that. And and it's it like worth was, pointing out like the, oh, like, yeah, yeah. like just your to, to jump on, you know, the connective tissue of like the women involved and like the their history with a genre that is largely about like men die in slasher films, but like that's not like you know like cut the bullshit. Like it's largely about women dying in a lot of these slasher films because it's usually involving pretty women on screen or traditionally pretty women on screen in various stages of undress that are then, you know, killed, you know, by, you know, name your, your slasher. But like John Carpenter gets, you know, rightfully so all sorts of credit for Halloween, but his wife is a co-writer on the film. Like Deborah Hill, who, uh, you know, has a profound influence on, on the film, like, like John Carpenter directed it, you know, did the music, like, you know, clearly a, a huge mark, but like, it's worth remembering that, like, the definitive, like, uh, uh, you know, slasher film, the prototypical uh, slasher film, like, was co-written by a woman. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very good point. Yeah. Um, one other thing uh, I gathered from the podcast that I really liked and appreciated that they they went into this just even a little bit um, was that John Carpenter, obviously, he grew up in the South. He grew up in Bowling Green. But they mentioned, like, oh, he was born in upstate New York and then moved there when he was nine or 10 or something. And they make that note of like, of course, upstate New York, also racist, like everywhere. It's America. It's racist everywhere. But like just how prominently outwardly racist, all these behaviors that he saw. But it it did like, it was good that it made that note of like, everywhere was racist. Don't get us wrong. Like, you know, this was not like, oh, evil is everywhere. But it was like, yeah, it was like making the point that like, he saw these things that were so outward. Yeah. I think like the way he described it was like, 
I thought I saw racism and then I went here, right? Like where right. it was like he yeah. had gotten, in, you know, ingrained with your everyday racism. And then he went to Bowling Green and was like, oh, fuck, like this is the dehumanization of people. And like Halloween is very much like the dehumanization of people uh, uh, like that is embedded in what makes Michael Myers so chilling. Like he has no agenda. He has no, I mean, the later films, like they don't grasp at least up until the fifth, the sixth one. Like there isn't still, isn't that much of a mythology. Like there are some vague allusions to like, baby, he is just sent from hell, blah, 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 blah. But like, there isn't actually like that much of a dissection of, you know, how did he become this way? It is sort of just implied by Dr. Loomis, who is like the connective tissue, his psychiatrist throughout the uh, large portions of the series is that like, no, he just is the way he is, which is like that analysis is like problematic for all sorts of different reasons, especially <laughs> in a modern context. But um, part of what makes Halloween tick um, is, is that lack of an explanation. It's like sometimes things just happen. Some, you know, sometimes bad things occur and like, so many horror films spend a lot of time trying to explain the why. It's part of the reason the Rob Zombie movies, while stylistically interesting in some ways, uh, because I think he has a good eye. Like I, you know, I, I think some of his films are. I think House of a Thousand Corpses is okay. Um, uh, what's the one he did after that? The uh, uh, oh, the road trip movie, huh? Uh, Demons something. No. Oh my god! Mm, shoot. Devil's Rejects. Devil's yeah, Rejects. Devil's Rejects. I haven't seen that in a while, <laughs> but I, I remember like thinking like that that's far and away his best film um and uh but he spent so much time in halloween trying to in the sequel which i never, I never even got i d- detested the original uh remake so much that i didn't even get around to the second one um but i just have no interest in learning like who michael myers is or why he did it like the power of him is that he just is and and i think that remains like one of the enduring powers of that original film yeah uh, last thing I'll say uh, just on this because it's so fresh in my mind was going to the uh, Halloween. It was I don't know why they picked Halloween four, but whatever. Going to the Halloween Horror Nights Halloween house and you know being literally attacked by Michael Myers a whole bunch of times and then listening to this podcast was very fun. Well, and now like, it makes more added sense. Added a little bit, you know, having <laughs> yeah, having yeah. watched Halloween four, uh, like it all takes place in this one really big elaborate house with a lot of stairs. So like. Now, I remember kind of laughing when we originally yeah. did that Waypoint Radio. I was like, why, well, why Halloween 4? Other than just, like, cycling through the series. It's like, oh, having now seen it, it's like, okay. Like, not a particularly great entry in the series, but uh, the actual setting, like, the contained, like, a lot of the action in the third act when the, the actual uh, violence is occurring, when, when Michael Myers finally sort of confronts everyone, largely happens in this, this one house that has a structural design that makes a lot of sense for... Okay. Um, uh, the, the thematic trappings of a, of a theme park. So I hadn't seen past three, it, at least in a very long time. Okay. I, mean, I, I saw just, H2O a million years. You know, I've seen many of them, but... And I just want to make, I want to make clear, all, so. like, uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, uh, which I... So for people who aren't aware, uh, John Carpenter reluctantly... I mean, the rights issues of Halloween are complicated and weird, um, but he always in, envisioned Halloween... The reason it was called Halloween and not like Michael Myers was because Halloween was supposed to be an anthology series. And so right. the second one was made because and he didn't, you know, direct the second one. I don't know exact involvement in eventually he was off it entirely and they were just sampling his music. I believe he might have been creatively involved somewhat in the second one. Um but uh the third one was like, okay, Halloween's been been so successful, like John, go go make your weird third one, which he didn't make, <laughs> but his best friend 
uh, Tommy Lee Wallace, I believe is he's referenced in the podcast. I think that's his yeah, name. He um, he was one of uh, John Carpenter's like best friends uh, growing up and became sort of a creative sidekick to him as he got into Hollywood. And so he wrote and directed the Halloween three season of the witch, which is like this has nothing to do with Michael Myers. It's not reference Halloween at all, except that Halloween is shown the, the movie Halloween is shown on television screens as being in theaters and stuff like that in, in the, in the movie, which is a, a cute reference. Um, and Jamie Lee Curtis <laughs> yeah. does like an uncredited, uh, like voiceover role. Like when someone picks up a phone and they get an operator, but it is like a uh-huh. twilight zone, uh, weird, uh, funny, interesting. Uh, it's a terrific film. Like I, I would say an all time classic that is, is, Ooh. uh, overlooked because it is called Halloween three season of the witch. And it doesn't have Michael Myers, but it is, it is so good, and I would highly recommend people check out Halloween Three. Like, it is not just good; it is like immediately vaulted up into like my top twenty like favorite horror films of all time, um, and has a really good jingle that the moment you hear it, you will have a <laughs> hard time getting it out of your head. So, <laughs> all right, uh, Halloween Three. But of course, we originally talked about Halloween Unmasked, which you can mm-hmm. listen. It's a Ringer podcast hosted by Amy Nicholson, which I thought was uh, really informative and well told. And uh, probably I'd get more out of it had I seen the movie. But I think it's doing a very good job of priming me to appreciate my first viewing of Halloween uh, on a level that probably very few people have for their first viewing. Uh, so it's, it's a very cool podcast. Um, highly recommended. I'm really curious to. I'm not sure if I should keep listening to it. Or if I should watch the movie and then keep listening to it. Um, it's a short movie too. Like it's a tight like ninety minutes. Like it's it's a movie with like zero fat. Like it is yeah. kind of in and out. Um, and uh, the sound mm, the soundtrack is just like there. This is my last point because I know I'm supposed to wrap up. Rob already gave me the signal. <laughs> but like when you think of like Halloween soundtrack, when you think of like John Carpenter's you know synthy music, um, like Halloween specifically, it's like dun, 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 dun. like yes, like that part's great. It's used very effectively, but it's like in the opening scene when it's like the handheld shot, when you are slowly realizing that you are in first person, you are, you know, the, the killer. Um, there's a sequence where uh, the, 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 the killer goes for a knife and there's this little like there's this just like high pitched like like he's just so effective at a certain style um, that I, I forgot like how effective his soundtracks are beyond his themes, like there, there are soundtracks on Spotify where you can listen to his themes, Halloween and otherwise, and they're very good. But just he was Cynthia stuff is now just nostalgia, but like he used it as an effective tool in a way that um, Halloween really underscores, and it's easy to forget how good he was. That toodle do knife sound does sound evocative and, <laughs> and artistic. Uh, I, I, it's like Zelda, I wasn't sold on you know? on the genius of his scores, <laughs> but I think that really brought the moment to life. Uh, I think that will do it for our waypoints this week. Uh, our thanks to Too Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. And you can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney, and you can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Patrick, where can people find you? I'm at Patrick Kluppick. Danielle. At Danielle R.I. Natalie. I'm at Natalie Watson, but my dis- my display name is Boodily Watson because it's <laughs> Halloween times now. So it's not Boodily like booty. Boo- it's bo- oh, mm. thank <laughs> you for the distinction. Like boo booty. It's like boo. boo. Like Jeb. All right. <laughs> uh, 
All right, that will do it for Waypoints. We hope you've enjoyed the break. Uh, we'll be back very soon with, I think we might be doing something a little more horror-themed uh, starting this week, Patrick? I think. we got to figure out a name. Or it could yeah, be yeah. another Waypoint Radio. A bit like the ads. Who can say what is the next thing you're about to hear? <laughs> uh, we're, excited. we're excited for whatever it is. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Uh, but uh, we hope you'll, you'll join us for it. Until then... Do not give in to astonishment. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.